This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Good morning. I am so inept at telling jokes that frequently, after I deliver the punchline, I will have to follow it with a question. And the question is this. Did you get it? Did you get it? And the reason I ask that question is because usually the person is not laughing. There's nothing more humiliating than to tell a joke and to have the person look at you and say, with a straight face, oh, that's funny. That is, I get it, that is really funny. If it is funny, then laugh. Well, in 1 John chapter 1, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee and Salome, the former fisherman from Capernaum, John, clearly conveys some foundational information concerning the word of life, Jesus Christ, concerning his relationship to God the Father, concerning our relationship to God the Father and Jesus Christ, and concerning our relationship to one another. And then after he delivers this message, he does not assume that we get the point. He does not assume that we get the punchline. He essentially says, did you get it? Did you get it? Uh, like a professor giving a lecture and then asking the class, did you understand? Well, the professor does not really know the answer to whether or not the class understood until the professor administers a test and then grades that test. Well, in this chapter, John is going to give both a lecture and a test. And so, for purposes of simplicity, that's going to be our outline this morning. Point number one is the lecture, and that's in verses 1 through 5 of 1 John 1. And then the test is going to come in verses 6 through 10 to see if indeed we got it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we embark upon this, another book of the Bible, which Lord, your servant John has written, but which was, Lord, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We do so, Lord, with fear and trembling and trepidation, Lord, for this is your word, your speaking, and Lord, we want to accurately represent you, for this is very, very serious. And so, Father, I would ask in Jesus' name that you would open our hearts and our minds to be attentive to the word. I pray, dear Lord, that our spirits would be inclined toward loving Jesus Christ and, Lord, be inclined toward doing what Jesus Christ has asked us to do. Father, I pray that the presentation of that this morning would be very clear. I pray that it would be very simple. Lord, I pray that we would leave here with no ambiguity concerning what it is that we are to do. I pray that we will leave here with our hearts filled with joy Lord, I pray that we will leave here desirous to fellowship with one another. These things, Lord, we can try to accomplish through the proclamation of the word and the listening of the word. But we acknowledge, Lord, that if your spirit does not come alongside the preaching of the word, 
then, Lord, it will accomplish nothing. But, Lord, we believe in what you have asked us to do. And so, Lord, in faith, I today proclaim the word. Lord, in faith today, your people listen to the word. And then, Lord, we're looking forward with great anticipation with what you will do with your word this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, the lecture. John gets right to the point. There's no greeting. There's no introduction. He dives right in, and so shall we. Verses 1 through 5. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Uh, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I love the straightforward nature of his writing. And I want to divide the lecture into two parts. I want us to see the goals and then the grounds. The goals and the grounds for the application or the test which will come later. Uh, We are not left to speculate concerning what his main point is. It's very clear. It's in the middle of the lecture, but it's still very clear. It's right in your face. John wrote these words to his audience. Look in verse 3. So that, verse 3, so that they could have fellowship together. Let me read the verse again. That which we have seen and heard, we will proclaim also to you, so that... Here's the reason why this is being proclaimed to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. That's the goal. If that, at the end of the day, is accomplished, then the goal has been achieved. Now, the word us there could be referring to John and the other apostles. The word us there could be referring to John and those who might have been his companions at the time. The word us there might refer to John and all other Christians. Or John might just be using the us, which is plural, uh, in a literary style. But probably the reason why John is referring to us there instead of I is probably because it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every truth is established. And so he is probably not only speaking for himself, but also for the other apostles. But which one it is, it really doesn't matter because it doesn't change his goal at all. And that is... His goal is that brethren would be having fellowship. Do you see that? It's very important Do you see this, that I am writing this so that we may have fellowship. Now, it's important that you do because that is John's aim for his audience. And we as Christians are in that audience. So let's define what fellowship is. It is the Greek word koinonia. And I will borrow from John Piper who defines it in the following way. Fellowship is a personal experience of sharing something significant in common with others. Fellowship 
is the personal experience of sharing something significant in common with other word, others. In other words, it is the pleasure of being in a group where you see eye to eye with one another, uh, where you have common affection and common values. Please forgive my limited background, but I have to draw from the world of sports in order to illustrate this. I'm going to tell you what fellowship is and then what fellowship is not. Fellowship is what I used to experience at Shea Stadium. Now, I no longer experience it at City Field for a number of reasons. Uh, one, the team is so bad. I don't like the stadium. It's too new. It's too clean. It's not laid out well. It's just It just doesn't fit the Mets, but that's not really part of the sermon. But at Shea Stadium, for those of you who ever were at Shea Stadium, you know what true fellowship is. You walk into that dump and you sit there in those seats where the hinges are really not working well and frequently they would break, and you sit there and you watch this team, this team that has been put together, this team which has a history which is deplorable, this team which is designed to break your heart, and you watch what's going on on the field with those that are sitting around you and the seats are too narrow, so you're actually spilling over into the seat beside you, and you're watching what is happening on the field, and as something happens, and you have sacrificed to be there, to to get there, to actually get to that seat and to sit down and to watch what's happening there. And when something happens on the field, which is for the good of the Mets, together, we all, 55,000 of us, all of us have fellowship together. We are close to one another. We are high-fiving people we don't even know. There is great camaraderie and there is enthusiasm. And when, and this was usually the case, They would do something to lose the game. We, in fellowship, would walk out of the stadium despondent. That is fellowship. It is a common goal, and we share it together, and we were very close to one another back in what was Shea Stadium. That is fellowship. Here's what fellowship is not. For some reason, and I cannot explain this, I like polka music. I am, and this is a true statement, the only person I know, not only in my family, but the only person I know who likes polka music. And so whenever I will see it come on television, I will watch it. Now, sometimes my family members will be forced to be there in the room with me. Usually it's with some kind of a complaint. Always it's with some kind of a look on their face of disdain. And so even though we are in the same room, we are listening to the same music, we're watching the same program, there is no fellowship happening there. There is no common goal. There is no camaraderie. John says, here's my goal for the church. I want you to be close. I want you to have fellowship. I want you to have a shared common goal And I want you to experience it with closeness and enthusiasm. But notice, it's a closeness that is not based on emotion or sentimentality, although emotions will follow. It's a fellowship based upon not ethnicity and not personality and and not culture and not common temperament and not preferences. It is a fellowship which fundamentally has the Lord as its bullseye. That's what John is saying. Look again at the end of verse 3. He says, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 
So if you do the math, John says, I want us to have fellowship. And since I or we are having fellowship with God and with Jesus, therefore, if you are going to have fellowship with me or with us, you also have to be in close fellowship with God and with Jesus. Otherwise, we cannot be in fellowship with one another. Let me go back to baseball. Someone says, you know, I'm interested in baseball. Why don't you take me out to the ball game? I say, all right, well, let's go to the game. Well, if when I take that person to the game, they don't understand the game, they don't appreciate the game, if they don't have a passion for those pitiful losers in orange and blue, if they have not been through what we have been through with all of our disappointments with the Mets, and they are not interested in what is happening there, and they go to the game, we are not going to have fellowship. Let me give you a quote from an author by the name of Art Hill. He wrote a book entitled, I Don't Care If I Never Come Back a baseball fan in his game. And here's what he says. With those who don't love baseball, I can only sympathize. I do not resent them. I am even willing to concede that many of them are physically clean, good to their mothers, and in favor of world peace. But while the game is on, I can't think of anything to say to them. For those of you that love baseball, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And John is saying... The extent to which our fellowship is going to grow and is going to be real and genuine is going to be in direct proportion to our fellowship with the Lord. Practically speaking, this means that our thinking and our priorities and our goals and our passions are going to line up with God's. To stay with the illustration To have fellowship with God is to say that you are sitting with him in the stadium of life and that you share his values and that you see the game, that you see life through his eyes. And that which makes him cheer is that which would be what would make you cheer and that which would cause him to grieve would be the same for you. And so you put it all together and what makes a good church is when the members see eye to eye with the Lord and with each other. That's really what we're looking at here. And here's the key. John's goal is that they be in fellowship with one another. And that sense of teamwork is only possible when we all make fellowship with the Lord our number one priority. Do you understand what I'm saying? John says, here's what I want. I want you to be in fellowship with one another. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so therefore, if we are to be in fellowship with one another, we all have to be in close fellowship with the Lord. And so let's not get the cart in front of the horse. The first step is fellowship with the Lord, even though the goal is fellowship with one another. And pastors all the time, and I'm included in this, do all that they can to get their people to love one another. But at best, this is going to be shallow unless our common point of fellowship is the Lord himself. And that fellowship is something that you do not and cannot enjoy unless you are born again. And so really, unless you are born again, we don't have fellowship with one another. 
Jesus said, you must be born again. Very simply, that means that you have been born from above, that you have been birthed by God, that you've received a second birth from the Lord, that you've come to realize that He is holy and that you are not and that you are estranged from Him, that you are His enemy, but that He loves His enemies and He loves His enemies so much that He did something to bring us into a relationship with Him. And what he did is that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And Jesus, in coming to earth, lived for his enemies and then lived in in place of his enemies and died in place of his enemies and rose again. And now Jesus Christ lives today. And we come to the end of ourselves and we say, Lord, we need to be saved. And so, Jesus, would you save us? That is the simplicity of it. That is the gospel. And those that have come to that point, and they've come from all different backgrounds, but we've all come to that gate. We've all entered into the stadium at that one point at Mount Calvary, at the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have all walked into the stadium through that one gate. And now as we are in the stadium, we have fellowship with one another. But unless you have walked in that gate, unless you are saved, we do not have fellowship. But even after you're saved, you have to cultivate a close relationship with the Lord. And it's not as if we are unsaved, And now all of a sudden we walk through the gate of salvation into the stadium, if you will. And now all people who have walked into the stadium are equally involved in one another's lives and love one another equally. But what has to happen in order for that to be more and more the case is that there needs to be a drawing close to the Lord. Because that which is the essence and the root of our relationship with one another is our closeness to the Lord. So it's not just a matter of being saved, but it is a matter of walking with the Lord. And how do we walk with the Lord? Well, we know his word. We memorize his word. How do you have fellowship with someone who never talks to you? So he's your friend? Yes. Well, when's the last time you heard from him? Oh, it was a couple years ago. So he's your friend? Yes. I don't believe that. If we never hear from God, if he never talks to us, and by the way, God does not talk to us through visions, okay? God talks to us through his word. This is how he talks to us. If you are not reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, the reason you memorize it is so that you can carry it around all day with you. If you're not in the word, God is not talking to you, so you're not really fellowshipping with him. Praying. How do you have a friend to whom you never speak? Well, to pray is to talk to him. Obeying his commandments. Jesus said, you are happy if you do these things, John 13, 17. So, do you see John's goal for them? That is fellowship. And do you see the basis of that fellowship that is with the Father and with the Son? But John has another goal in mind, and this one's a little bit more complicated, so I need you to put on your thinking caps, and here's the goal. John has a goal for himself, and we see that in verse 4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, some versions say your joy, but the best versions say Our joy. John says, we are writing all of these things to you 
so that our joy might be complete. Now, what do you what do you mean by that, John? It's not selfish, but it's obedient. And the reason I say that is because God has commanded us to seek joy. In Psalm 37, it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. But we forget that first part. It is a command. It is an imperative that you are called to seek joy, to delight yourself in the Lord. The New Testament equivalent of that is Philippians 4.4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. That is a command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, in case you didn't hear me the first time, I say rejoice. There is a command to seek joy. And Jesus had this goal for his disciples. And again, not just for joy, but the fullness of joy, maximum joy. Would you turn to something that this same author wrote back in John chapter 15, please? And I want you to see this. And there's a lot of repetition between the gospel of John and the epistle of 1 John. John had all things brought to his remembrance by the Holy Spirit that Jesus spoke. And I want you to see what Jesus said in John 15 verses 10 through 12. And this is going to come as close this morning as to being complicated as anything that I'll say. This is a very simple message this morning. But if you're, if you're wanting to know when is the time to pay close attention, it's right here. Now, the goal is fullness of joy. The person speaking is Jesus Christ. And notice how he says it is brought about. We start in verse 10. He says in verse 10 that... If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so he's put the example in front of us, and what we are to do is quite simply to obey. These things I have spoken to you that or so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus has a goal for his disciples that they would not only experience joy, but the fullness of joy. And he says it comes about by keeping his commandments. Now, watch what it says in the, immediately, uh, in the verse which immediately follows, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So in that you see the gospel But you see the commandment there for fellowship. Remember our goal back in 1 John chapter 1. John says, I'm writing these things so that you will have fellowship with one another. And the other reason why I'm writing these things is so that my joy will be full. And how then, John, is your joy full? His joy becomes full when the people to whom he is writing are in close fellowship with one another. And it is not just joy, but it is the fullness of joy. And people say, well, you don't know the circumstances of my life because I really can't be experiencing joy given all the problems that I'm having right now. And I would say to you, will you please consider where Jesus was when he spoke these words? John 15 was spoken by Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. It was the worst and the saddest of all possible nights. And Jesus, in the midst of the worst and saddest of all possible nights, says, I am speaking these things to you so that your joy may be full. So the conclusion is that John has learned from Jesus that complete joy is his desire for us. That's what Jesus wants from us. And it comes from fellowship with the Lord, and it comes from love or fellowship with one another. So follow the argument. 
John the professor, in his lecture, says to his students, I have a goal for myself in this, and that is that I or we may be full of joy. Uh, He's not saying, nor is he implying, uh, that Jesus is not enough. No, what he's saying is not, we need Jesus plus, no, anything. No, he's not saying that at all. He is saying that maximum joy, the greatest manifestation of joy of Jesus is experienced when we fellowship with him alongside alongside others whom he has saved. Let me repeat that because that is the bottom line. He is saying that the maximum joy which we are going to experience in Jesus Christ is when we have fellowship with him and with his Father alongside or with the others whom he has saved. Maximum joy does not come as the Lone Ranger Christian, but maximum joy comes as we fellowship with him and with one another. John unashamedly puts the quill to the parchment and says, in essence, I am looking to be happy, and I am looking to be happy in Jesus. And I know that this is not maximized by withdrawing from other people. Rather, it is by pursuing fellowship with them. And this is very consistent with what John says in 3 John verse 4, where he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John, what makes you the happiest? When I look at my children, my disciples, and I see that they too are walking in the truth. And so please don't misunderstand. Fellowship among the brethren is not an end in and of itself. It's, it's the goal because when it is achieved, then and only then can we experience the fullness of joy which God intends for us. So, there's something that every person can agree upon. And that is that we all want joy. The drug addict, the hedonist, the workaholic, the Christian, we all agree on this one thing. We want joy. We want the fullness of joy. We want to be as happy as we possibly can. Uh, That's what it means to be a human being. God has made us to seek joy. That's not bad. But we disagree on how to get there. We all want to arrive I too want that. John says, I too want that. And John says, I know how to get there. My pursuit of joy is zealously driven by having fellowship with the Lord and using all of my influence to persuade those of you for whom Christ died to join me. And therefore, to be in Christ and at the same time to be indifferent about the health and the fervor and the intensity of the fellowship of the local church, number one is to be off track in pursuing the fullness of joy. Do you hear what I'm saying, what John is saying here? If you are indifferent about the spiritual condition of your brothers and sisters, their fellowship with God and your fellowship with them, number one, It's off track. If you're not concerned about those things, you're not going to reach the fullness of joy. But also, 
it is an offense to the God who saved you. A joyless Christian is at best a bad advertisement, and at worst, a joyless Christian is an offense to God. And an apathetic Christian or an introspective Christian who is not concerned with other Christians but is always keeping to himself and is not passionate about facilitating fellowship with God and fellowship among the brethren is, as I said before, at best a bad ad for Christianity and at worst is an offense to God. So, do you see John's goal? Believers to have fellowship with one another, with him, as they have fellowship with the Lord and thereby achieving the fullness of joy in his heart. That is his goal for other believers. And then his goal for himself is that by doing this and communicating this, then he himself will have the fullness of joy. Do You see that? That's his goal. So now, how is he going to accomplish this? Well, he puts a foundation under it. Those were the goals, but now here are the grounds. The grounds are spelled out in verses 1 through 3 and then down in verse 5. Again, look at the beginning of verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The person of Jesus Christ is the ground and foundation upon which we have fellowship. It's what the theologians call Christology. Specifically, it is the mystery of the hypostatic union. Now, what is the hypostatic union? Well, it's the doctrine which says that Jesus is fully God, 100% God, divine, just as the Father is God, and just as the Holy Spirit is God, so Jesus is God. And at the same time, Jesus is fully man, 100% man, lived on this earth in a body just like you and me and subjected himself to all of the limitations that we deal with every day. Not a sinful human being, but a human being nevertheless. And some speculate probably that John was writing to battle a heresy known as Gnosticism, or at least pre-Gnosticism. And Gnosticism essentially taught that the spirit is good, but the physical and the body and the flesh is bad. And therefore, it is impossible that God would take upon human flesh, since human flesh intrinsically is bad. And so they would also say, it doesn't matter what you do with your human flesh, it doesn't matter what you do with your body in relation to immorality, because the body is evil anyway, and only the spirit counts. Now, I'm not sure that that's exactly what John was battling, but it was something like this. But it doesn't matter if Gnosticism was his foe or not. Under any circumstances, the ground upon which our faith is properly built, our foundation upon which all of our faith must be built, is proper Christology. Jesus, in Caesarea Philippi, when talking to his disciples, when he said, I will build my church, it was spoken after the greatest statement on Christology was ever uttered, and that was by Peter, who said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of our faith. 
And under any circumstances, the ground of our faith is proper Christology. Who is the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, and what has He done? John says that He is fully God and that He is fully man. Follow the argument here as I go through the text. And notice how He goes out of His way to talk about the fact that Jesus is both divine and human. Now the phrase, that which was from the beginning... It echoes John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it also echoes Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's intentional. But here's the question, which is not quite so obvious. Is the beginning, which is referred to here, the beginning of preexistent Christ in heaven before time began? Or is the beginning, the beginning of the earthly ministry of Christ? I am not sure, but I think he is referring to the beginning of the life of Christ, his earthly ministry. And the reason I say that is because the phrase which immediately follows has to do with his humanity. The humanity of Christ, stressing that Jesus came in the flesh. And how does he prove the humanity of Christ? He says to his audience, I was there, and the senses which God gave me were employed, but it wasn't me alone, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything is established. It wasn't just me, it was us, which we have heard. I have actually sat and listened to Jesus Christ teach. You know, we talk about witnessing. We're going to go out witnessing. Well, I understand what people mean when they say that, but really we are not. We are not witnessing or witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But John was. He actually, we could not be brought into a court of law and say, can you prove or can you testify that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? We can't. We didn't see him. But what John is saying here is that I did hear him with my own ears and which we have seen with our eyes. I have seen him with my own eyes. And then the next phrase says, which we have looked upon. Now, why would he say, we've seen him with our eyes and we've looked upon him? Is he being repetitive? Is he being redundant? I don't think so. That phrase, looked upon, is the same word that is used when in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. That word looked upon is beheld. I think he's referring here to the Mount of Transfiguration. We have looked upon and touched with our hands Jesus, not only before the resurrection, but after the resurrection, said to his disciples, see here, my hands, my side, touch them, see, a spirit does not have flesh and bones. He ate a meal in front of them after his resurrection All of these things we have used our senses concerning the word of life. And the word of life here is that Jesus Christ, you know, this is the written word of God. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. The phrase word of life is that Jesus, the incarnate son of God, means that his life was his message. His life was his word. And John bends over backwards to demonstrate that he wasn't a ghost, that he wasn't a phantom, that he didn't appear in a human form as the docetist heresy would teach, but that he, 
is fully human. Our eyes, our ears, our hands were involved in making this assessment. And then in verse 2, he said that the life was made manifest. Now, what does manifest mean? Well, it means it always was there, but it was revealed. He was in heaven, but then he came to earth and revealed himself, which speaks of his deity. At the end of verse 2, he gets more specific. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. He's repeating that again. And testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. The eternal life here does not mean what happens to us when we die and we go to heaven. When we die, we will go to heaven, and that is eternal life. But the eternal life, which is spoken of here, is a person. It is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. It is referring to him, not to an event. And his eternality extends eternally in eternity past. He is the eternal life. In him we have life because he is life. We proclaim to you, Jesus Christ, the eternal life which was with the Father, that speaks to his deity, that he is God, and was made manifest to us. And notice now, the made manifest to us is not just was manifested, but there is a specific object to that manifestation, and that is the doctrine of election, that he was made manifest to specific people. John clearly spells this out, that he did not manifest himself to everyone in the world. Back in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 22, where Judas, and again, this is on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, John 14, 22, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world. So John says, not only was he manifested, but he was manifested to us. And the point is, John goes back and forth between the deity and the humanity of Christ, and even throws in a word about election. And then at the beginning of verse 3, that which we have seen, again, we are bringing in the senses, and heard, we are bringing in the senses, we proclaim also to you. We're making it known to you. And I want you to also see that John not only is telling us this, but he is telling us that he is telling us this, that it is not hidden under a bushel. Three times in these verses, John not only makes these statements about Christ's humanity and Christ's deity, but he tells them that he is telling them that. In verse 2, he says, we testify to you. That's a legal term. He's making a testimony. And then in verse 2 and in verse 3, he says, we proclaim to you, we also proclaim to you. You say, so what? John is emphasizing the truth that these doctrines are not taboo, that they are not to be put under a bushel. He's testifying, he's going to court, putting his hand on the Bible and say, I swear that this is the truth. And he is making a proclamation, which means a public declaration, unashamedly. And this is important because the ground upon which the goal is based is proper Christology. Who is Jesus Christ himself? And the doctrine concerning who he is and what he has done, that is the gospel, is the foundation upon which our fellowship rests. Let me say that again. 
It's important that we know this because the ground of our fellowship is Jesus Christ himself. And the doctrine concerning who he is and what he has done in the gospel is the foundation upon which we have fellowship. In other words, if we do not get Jesus right, we do not have fellowship. Now to those who are with us today, who are of a Roman Catholic persuasion, first of all, let me say this to you. We are glad that you are here today. We are so glad that you are here today to hear the gospel. But please understand, what we have with one another is not fellowship. Because the Jesus whom you worship and the Jesus whom we worship are not the same person. They have not done the same thing. There is not fellowship. If we cannot agree upon who Jesus is, then we do not have fellowship. Fellowship is based upon proper Christology. And there are two crucial points of application that flow from this. Number one, unless we get the person and work of Jesus correct, there is no basis for fellowship. John wants them to have fellowship together. Remember that that is his goal. But it's not just camaraderie, like a high school musical. We're all in this together. No, it's that which unites us is a common cause, and that cause is Jesus Christ himself. And if we don't get that right, then number one, we are idolaters worshiping a domesticated Christ of our own imaginations, and we have no fellowship. And therefore, no matter what we miss, we better be correct on the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are going to be areas of Christianity where we are going to differ. We can get along splendidly. We're going to differ. But one of those areas cannot be the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, non-negotiable. Application point number two. There are those who wish to avoid doctrine and theology claiming that it's not important. And only is it not important, but it divides, so let's not talk about it. And Christian fellowship gets reduced to its lowest common denominator. Let's just get together and talk about the things that we can agree upon. And let's just focus on what unites us. And let's not bring up anything controversial. There was nothing more controversial at this time than the pre-Gnostic heresy. That was controversial. And John doesn't dance around it. In fact, he goes directly at it and explicitly states, this is who Jesus is, fully God and fully man. And I would say that in our fellowship with one another, the more we simplify it, and the more we water it down, and the more we make it palatable, so that no one will be offended, the weaker and the shallower our fellowship will be. In other words, deep, true Christian fellowship has as its ground and its basis and its foundation a proper understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not advocating doctrinal arrogance that leads to unhelpful debate. I'm talking about firm, fixed convictions which we treasure and protect and defend. And at the top of that list is Christology. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And any variation from that 
and we no longer have fellowship. True doctrine is not only a friend to true fellowship, but it is the life's blood of true fellowship. Let me say that again. Sound doctrine is not only a friend to true fellowship, sound doctrine is the life's blood of true fellowship. And so, the lecture is just about over. John says, here's my goal. I want us to have fellowship together. The only way we can do that is if we're both having fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Here's the ground. It's sound doctrine. And now... John concludes his lecture with one final word of theology. And that comes in verse 5. And it concerns the Father. And it's going to be very helpful that you pay attention to this before you take the test. Verse 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. What are you saying, John? John is saying that God is holy. And by nature, we love God's love, but by nature, we hate God's light. By nature, we love to be loved by God, but we hate the light of God. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. By nature, we don't desire fellowship with God. And this is a problem if we are to have fellowship with Him and with His Son and others who are walking in the light. But be that as it may, God is light with no hint of darkness. And this is the proclamation of Christ to John about God given to us. 1 John 6.16, God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. So, our God is holy, absolutely holy, lives in absolute light, And that is key, and it's a key truth, and you're going to need to know that truth when you take this test. Now, the lecture is over. Are you ready for the exam? The exam has five parts. They all begin with the word if. The the exam is not a written exam. The exam is 60% negative. It is 40% positive. If you get the questions right, then you'll be rewarded. If you miss the questions, then you will fail. You ready for your exam? This is the, did you get it? Okay, the joke has been told. The punchline has been delivered. Now John is not assuming that you have the implications for it. He's saying, now, did you get it? Here we go. Did you get it? Did you get everything? We, well, here's, here's the test. Question number one. Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at that phrase, if we say. What John is saying here is what you say plus $2.75 will get you onto the subway. What you say does not matter. It is of no value at all. If you are making a proclamation that you have fellowship with him, You have come to the church and you have sung the songs and you have said, oh, how I love Jesus. 
I am fellowshipping with him. And therefore, since I am fellowshipping with him, I'm a candidate to be fellowshipping with you. And this is my declaration. And John says, if those are the things that you say, and yet at the same time, there is an incongruity, there is a discontinuity, and you are at the same time walking in darkness. And how can you walk in darkness when God is light? God is light to the point where in him there is no darkness at all. If you are walking in darkness, John says, I don't believe you. And the reason I don't believe you is because you are a liar and you do not practice the truth. And I love what he says here, you do not practice the truth. Because truth is not only something which is believed with the intellect, but truth is something that is lived out. There are plenty of people who know what the truth is, but do not live it. And just because they know the truth and they could pass the written exam does not mean that they are going to be graded that way. We are graded by how we live. And if you say that you're having fellowship with God, but yet at the same time you're walking in darkness, you're lying, you're not practicing the truth. And Jesus is the truth. Question number two. Verse seven. But, on the other hand, by contrast, positively speaking, if we walk in the light, that's a good thing to do since God is light. If we are living openly before the brethren, we're not living a double life, we're not hidden. If we walk in the light, As he is in the light, well, now that's a little bit harder. You see, we are all willing to walk in a certain amount of light, are we not? And no one is an absolute hermit. There are some things that I will, you know, let you know about myself. But this is saying walk in the light as he is in the light. Well, in that case, then our goal is accomplished. We have fellowship with one another. What is it that makes it all possible? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is of first importance, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So question number two is, if you are walking in the light, then the goal is accomplished. We're in fellowship with one another, and our sins are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Question number three. Verse eight. If, there's that word if again, if we say, there's that declaration again, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The Gnostics taught that the spirit is all that counts and your sin is in your body and since your body doesn't count, therefore, technically you can say, that you have no sin. You can go out and commit adultery and say that you have no sin because you're committing adultery with your body. So really, in your spirit, you're not committing adultery and therefore you have no sin. John says, if you say that, not only are you self-deceived, but the truth is not in you. My friends, I don't think I need to do too much convincing this morning, but let me tell you, you are a sinner. You've always been a sinner. You'll always be a sinner. You're a forgiven sinner if you're in Christ, but you are a sinner nonetheless. It shouldn't be too hard to get this question right. This is the gimme, okay? Is there anybody who would like to say, I have no sin? We're all agreed. Very good. You passed. Congratulations. But now we move on to question number four, verse nine. 
if we confess our sins, not just sin, that is who we are, but our sins, the specific sins which we have committed, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Implied in this is that we admit that we are sinners, and implied in this is that we repent. For there are those who have taught this and said that repentance is not necessary for forgiveness. All you need to do is confess. I've told God that it's wrong, and that's it. That's the end of it. I will continue to do it, but I've confessed it. That flies in the face of the first test question, does it not? That if we walk in darkness, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. So not only do you need to agree with God that you were a sinner and to confess that sin to God, but you must also repent of that sin. But when we confess our sins, we are walking in the light. And our forgiveness, brothers and sisters, look at this beautiful truth. Our forgiveness is based upon his faithfulness and his justice. Not our tears, not our sincerity, not our ability to remember which sins we've committed, not our contrition, but it is based upon his faithfulness and his justice. Wow. Forgiven before a just God. And it is based upon the power of his blood. Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is a great test question today. You should be very happy that you have taken this test. Because some of you have come here today with a great load of sin and guilt. You are saved, but there are some big sins that are in your life right now. How in the world are we going to get rid of them? This is the good news. This test is great news. Confess. Agree with God. See it as He sees it. Repent. And then rest in the promise that you are forgiven and cleansed from not just the small sins, but all unrighteousness. And once you've done that, well then, my friends, you are walking in the light. You can have fellowship with the Lord and we can have fellowship with one another. Which brings us to the final test question, and that is in verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, there's a difference between 8 and 10. 8 talks about who we are, our nature. 10 talks about the things which we specifically have done. And he says in verse 10, if you're going to keep justifying yourself and keep defending yourself, not concerning your nature, but concerning your conduct, your specific sins... John says, not only are you self-deceived, but it's worse than that. You're a blasphemer. And I want to tell you today, I am more concerned about the person who is the church member here who never confesses any sins. I'm more concerned about that person than I am about the person who is messing up all the time and confessing their sins. Come on, who are we kidding? You never do anything wrong? Do you know what sin is? Do you know what sin is? Sin against God and sin against your fellow man. It is any violation of the law of God. It is anything that comes short of God himself. To fail to love God perfectly and to love your neighbor as yourself is sin. And you're going to tell me that you don't have any sins? Are you the one who quickly and frequently confesses your specific sins? If not, John says, you are 
In a worse case than self-deception, you are a blasphemer because you make God a liar. Because he is light. And he says that you sin. And every time that you defend yourself, you're going to tell him that he's wrong. So, if you missed question number five, his word is not in you. And Jesus is the word of life. And you're not in fellowship with God and John's goal for you. True fellowship you cannot have with the brother and I either. So, test is over. How did you do? How did you do? See, here's the great news. This is not like many of the tests that I took when I was in school. I took it once. I failed it, but it was not re-offered. This test is re-offered, and it's re-offered right now. And even if you failed this test as it was given over the last 10 minutes, you can take it again right now. The great news is that even if you failed miserably, the test is always in front of you. Get out of the darkness. Repent. Walk in the light. Admit you are a wretch. Confess your sins. Admit you've done wretched things. And believe the gospel, which is of first importance, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins. So, introduction to First John. John says, I have this goal. I want you to be in fellowship with one another. The ground upon that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let's see if you understand Are you walking in the light? Are you confessing your sins? Are you admitting you're a sinner? Is the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing you from all sin? I think that's what chapter 1 means. God help us that we might live it. Father in heaven, please be with us now as we go through this book and help us even this day to have fellowship with one another and with your son Jesus Christ and to walk in the light For it is in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org. 